0: Hello, and welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. For weeks, our listeners have been asking us to cover the situation in Xinjiang province, where the Uyghur, mostly Muslim ethnic minority is being systematically persecuted by the Chinese government. I'm Zach Beecham. I'm here with Alex Ward. Jen Williams is out this week, so we brought in an expert on the Uyghurs to talk with us. Uh, That's James Palmer, who's an editor at Foreign Policy. Hi, James. Hi, Zach. So when you start people off trying to explain what's happening in Xinjiang today— what, what do you tell them? What's your your entry point?
1: Well, we're at a crisis point where the Chinese government has moved from previously repression of Uyghur culture, but tolerance and attempts at assimilation, attempts at seeing Uyghurs as part of wider Chinese culture, to an almost pathologizing of Uyghur identity, whereby being Uyghur, in particular being a practicing Muslim, is seen as being a deep threat to the Chinese state. And that's resulted in around a million Uyghur being put into concentration camps, Uh, using that term in the the original sense, meaning that is places where you concentrate a population, where you press a population together in order to control them. Fairly few people have been released from these camps, which are normally termed re-education camps. We don't know a lot about what their ultimate goal is or what's happening in them. And so this is really uh, a crisis of unprecedented proportions, even when it comes to a population that's been heavily repressed in the past.
0: Is it fair to say that the basic goal here is the replacement of Uyghur culture and identity with with something else, with a more homogenous Han Chinese identity?
1: Yes, I think it's part of of a, a big push for Han Chinese dominance within China itself, which was not always the case in the past. And for the extermination of Uyghur tradition, of Uyghur religious belief, and I think ultimately aimed at the breakup or dissolution of the Uyghur as a people.
0: What... I don't fully understand is why Xi Jinping's government has decided to launch this such a systematic and widespread targeting of Uyghur society. And just to
2: build on that point, I had heard that there had been attacks by Uyghurs on sort of Han Chinese people coming in, that the government considered these terrorist attacks effectively, these separatist attacks. And that is, was that used as kind of a cover for this bigger campaign?
1: Yes. So we should probably actually start with 2009. So, two thousand and nine saw riots in Urumqi, where young uh, Uyghur men—and
0: sorry, Urumqi is. is
1: the is is one of the major cities in Xinjiang. So, young Uyghur men basically went on a rampage. They attacked Han Chinese. They attacked other ethnic minorities. We don't know really how many people were killed. At least a couple of hundred people were killed in the initial riot. I had a friend, in fact, who was caught up in it—a Han Chinese whose bus was overturned and the, the head of his bus driver hacked off by the mob. And so this was this kind of outpouring of, of violence by a population that was increasingly angry, increasingly, so itself is increasingly targeted. That prompted retaliatory violence in turn, both by the People's Armed Police, who were the kind of Chinese militia, paramilitary forces, and by Han living in Xinjiang against ethnic Uyghur communities. And again, we don't really know the extent of that because this whole region is very much a black box. It's hard to travel around, particularly in the countryside. Controls are very strict. So a lot of this comes to us through rumor. And then it seems as though there's been a growing insurgency in Xinjiang over the last seven, eight years that has probably involved both numerous attacks by Uyghur on Han targets, particularly symbols of officialdom. Um, So the Chinese press would often talk about social workers being attacked. But by social workers, what they really meant was people who were monitoring and controlling, officials who were in charge of basically enforcing the systems of repression. So you have this kind of boiling pot of of violence and um, ethnic tensions. There have been, in turn, massive retaliation, both by Han settlers and by the Chinese state, we think, against uh, the Uyghur population. So, So there was a shift then? So we've seen two shifts, one since 2009 when there was serious ethnic violence in Xinjiang and then a further shift in the last two years when new security policies and uh, tightening a paranoia politically under Xi Jinping, China's president, who has increasingly dictatorial powers, uh, really sped up the situation. And the camps themselves were only established in their current form at the end of last year. So this huge population, this sort of million or so people have been put into the camps in the last 12 to 18 months.
0: Sorry, a million people in
1: about a year? A million people in about a year, yes. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it, it speaks to the extent of control and repression and the speed with which it grew. Even when I was talking about this in May, and we'd just got uh, We've just got figures that indicated the the size of how many people were in the camps, which previously we'd thought of as maybe being sixty to one hundred and twenty thousand people. Uh, there was skepticism even from people who covered Xinjiang that the numbers could be this big, but the evidence has simply mounted over time, evidence drawn from. Uh, internal Chinese documents from satellite imagery, from the testimonies of Uyghur who have escaped Xinjiang and in a few cases been able to escape the camps.
0: Talk to me about what this is like when you interact with actual people who themselves are have been persecuted by the Chinese government or who have family members who have.
1: One of the, the issues here is that the Chinese government has been really targeting Uyghurs abroad to try and terrify them into not speaking out, to threatening them with retaliation against family back home. For instance, I was contacted by one student who was studying abroad, who was what we would say a a fairly assimilated family, a family he had been through the Chinese education system. He spoke good Chinese, which many Uyghur don't. He also spoke good English. He he was kind of a model student and had been able to leave Xinjiang and study in the United States he was being threatened by the Chinese government that if he didn't return, they would send his family to the camps. I said to him what I've said to a a couple of people who have contacted me uh, directly or indirectly in the same situation, which is uh, your family will be sent to the camps anyway because they're seen as suspicious, because you've been abroad, and you will be sent to the camps if you return. Because one of the things we've absolutely seen is that the more educated you are, the more contact you've had with the outside world, the more likely you seem to be to be a target uh, for this so called re education. So, very many Uyghur intellectuals, prominent linguists, thinkers, scholars of Uyghur culture have been sent to the camps, at least members of the Uyghur football team. The Uyghur are excellent footballers. Like a lot of places in the world that are poor and play on sand, they develop really good ball control skills early. At least one really prominent player was sent to the camps. And we've seen reporter after report of people being forced back or being attempted to be forced back from abroad uh, and then being sent to the camps.
0: I I want to drill down on life in the camps themselves, right? Because uh, it seems like there's almost no information that we've reliably gotten about what it's like. But based on the, the crumbs and tidbits that we have, what can we say about life, a daily life in a camp?
1: So it resembles basically a a very sparse, harsh sort of prison camp. Food is pretty minimal. People aren't being starved to death, but but they're not getting nutrition. Older people are dying. Um, People are not getting medical treatment. And many of the people being sent to the camps are in their 60s, 70s, or 80s. The day is mostly taken up with brainwashing. So with the chanting of slogans, with the showing of propaganda videos, with all these materials that are supposed to convince people of the greatness of Xi Jinping, the wonders of the Chinese state, and so on. People sleep sort of six to eight to a room. There's very little to do. And as well as the main camps themselves, which have a population we think of about a million people, there's, I think, about two million people who are having to go to classes during the day, but who are sleeping in their own beds and the the Chinese government often claims that these programs are vocational but of course we're seeing doctors we're seeing 70-year-old people we're seeing famous poets and thinkers being sent to the camps who you know certainly don't need to learn to be Chinese factory workers
2: i have a question about the way china really uses technology to is china using repressive tools here in the technological space to to accomplish a feat as horribly remarkable as this
1: well, there's a, a huge network of cameras and electronic checks throughout Xinjiang. So at almost every point when you travel through the region nowadays, and this has substantially increased in the last few years, your ID is checked. Now, every Chinese citizen is expected to carry their national ID card at all times anyway. But in the course of a typical day in, say, Beijing, it's never checked. But in Xinjiang, it's much more like a continual series of checkpoints at shopping malls buses. So if you're taking a bus through the region, you'll be the bus will be pulled over, you know, sort of once every hour or two, and everybody's ID will be checked. And then th- those IDs connect to a central registry so that people who are not where they're supposed to be can be identified. One of the things we've seen over the last few years is Uyghur systematically pushed out of the rest of China and back into Xinjiang. Mm. So the Uyghur population in Beijing, where I had a, a lot of contacts friends has massively diminished. I would say is down by sort of 90%, 95%. So you've had the have this population forced back to Xinjiang uh, and then subject to very strong controls. But most of the enforcement is done by simple manpower. So hundreds of thousands of Han Chinese officials have been sent to live with Uyghur in their families to effectively act as sort of spies in the home. And they often, for instance, try to get them to eat pork to demonstrate their loyalty Um, because a lot of the symbols of Islam have become seen as symbols of separatism or resistance. Any level of religious faith seems to be one of the the keys, particularly for young men, that can get you sent to the camps.
0: And a lot of the coverage has focused on the high-tech stuff that you were talking about a second ago like really high tech stuff like we're talking China's social credit score which is a way of assessing the quality of a person basically and giving them privileged access to certain certain types of state institutions right and then you also have facial recognition software as examples of things that people have really brought up as tools to used to identify and repress individual weakers to what extent is that you know, actually, the situation on the ground.
1: So so most of this is not really true. Most of the technology is technology that could have been put in place 10 or 15 years ago in the West. It's simply the scale. There is an element in which these technologies are being trialed in Xinjiang in terms of how much of this can we do, how much of this slows down everyday life, how much of this does this cripple the economy, this kind of thing. Social credit doesn't really exist. The Western reporting on it has been terrible. There's a series of programs which are basically designed to either build up the trustworthiness and the credit ratings of businesses or to provide access to, to credit, like we we think of as credit uh, in China. There's no, there's not a single score that anybody has that's, that goes up and down. There's a whole bunch of, of systems mostly aimed at the moment at either corporations or debt. If you haven't paid a court-enforced debt, you can be put on a credit blacklist. That means you can't buy first-class train tickets or, or plane tickets, for instance. So the idea that there's a single that there's a single score came because of some very bad reporting that confused this with. The systems set up privately by Chinese companies to, for, on things like Alibaba. So basically, imagine that somebody saw your eBay rating and said, "Was like and was like, oh, Americans all get a rating of how trustworthy they are that runs that goes from you know like A to to D minus or however the eBay thing goes. they don't actually know. And this is and this your is Uber used to determine scorer, that. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And facial recognition is one of those things that China constantly likes to talk up, in part because it's trying to sell it to other countries. You, you very often get in China that the government decides that it it, it wants something. An, an enormous amount of money is thrown at it. And so people locally have to talk up the successes in order to justify this money. So we don't actually have any reliable data on how good Chinese facial recognition is. We know from other countries that facial recognition systems have often kind of disasters. Like when the police tried to use it in England the uh, false positive rate was something like 98%. Mm. Because failures can't be reported in China, we really have no idea of how well the system works.
0: Now, that all sounds right to me, but I do want to push back a little bit on the idea that this is all just technology that could have been used 10 years ago, right? So one report from Xinjiang, for example, reports that some Uyghurs have been made to download apps on their phone, specifically an app called Jingwang, that monitors, quote-unquote, illegal religious content and harmful information. And it seems like it's not just old tools of repression, but there actually is web-based innovation in how China is crushing people's spirits.
1: Sure, but I mean, we had smartphones 10 years ago. I think we forget how long this technology has been around. And even before that, China tried to introduce monitoring software called Green Dam onto all personal computers back in uh, the early 2000s. Um, that, that program was dropped in part because it was basically a scam being run on the government that copied the code from an American manufacturer. And so it was still sending reports back to this American manufacturer that was suddenly like, why do we have like a parental controls you know, program that was like, why are we suddenly getting like 100,000 reports from China? <laughs> the, the digital story has been interesting.
0: We've been talking about what's new about Chinese repression in Xinjiang, how it's evolved over the past several years, and the technology that's been used in it, and whether that's really as new as some people claim. After the break, we're going to talk about what's old about this and its connections to Chinese policies from a different era. Imagine your family without the assistance that you provide them. How can you make sure that they're taken care of even if something unexpected happens to you? Well, life insurance, obviously, but it used to be a huge pain to get. You had to deal with an agent who comes across kind of like a used car salesman, schedule a blood test at a doctor's office, and read over tons and tons of complicated, fine-print-laden paperwork. Uh, but with Ethos, you can do it differently. An application takes 10 minutes online. They have honest, upfront pricing without the confusing legalese that was in your old paperwork, and there's no doctor's appointment for policies under $1 million. So get your free quote and submit your complete application in just 10 minutes now at worldly.getethos.com. One more time, that's worldly.getethos, E-T-H-O-S, s.com. Is it possible for one of the most brazen political bribery scandals in American history to play out before the country while nobody's paying attention? Bagman, a new Rachel Maddow podcast from MSNBC, goes back 45 years to dig into a story that got overshadowed in its day. It has intrigue, corruption, envelopes of cash delivered to the White House. It's a story that's not well-known, but it probably should be, and especially today. Bagman, an original podcast from MSNBC's Rachel Maddow. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts or learn more at msnbc.com slash bagman. I'm Sarah Cliff, the host of The Impact from Vox, a show about how policy shapes people's lives. I live in Washington, DC, where the policymaking process is really broken. But this is just not true when you leave the Beltway. So many cities and states are doing interesting, exciting, sometimes kind of wacky things to tackle our country's biggest problems. So this
2: season, we are crisscrossing the country. South Carolina, Baltimore, Chicago, Vermont, Oakland, New York, Seattle. We are looking at cities and states as laboratories
0: of democracy, wrestling with serious problems and experimenting with bold solutions.
2: When someone is facing deportation, it should be a universal right. So I'm looking to take advantage of all opportunities for me and my family. The impact. Find us
0: on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Hi, and, and welcome back, everybody. Uh, so we've been talking about a truly horrifying campaign of cultural cleansing against the Uyghur Muslim minority in China. I want to connect this, or at least I, I think we ought to connect it, to other times that China has oppressed national, ethnic, religious minorities uh, in its recent past. and. and to me, Alex, what comes to mind first is its treatment of Tibet.
2: Yeah, I, I had the same thought, actually. I, for those who don't know, under Mao, China really went after Tibet, which is a region in China's west, most famously led to the exile of the Dalai Lama. And the playbook was very similar, right? Bring forces in. It was more military then, but in this case, they'll bring officials in, kind of re- repress everybody, force them to change their culture, to kind of— you know, communist feelings and, and 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 create a communist perfect society and just change everything about that sort of historical Buddhist area. The, this is, obviously there are some differences, but it's very clear that this is another kind of wave of that same behavior.
1: When in fact the party secretary of Xinjiang, now uh, Trung right. Hoa, cut his teeth, sort of made his name in Tibet where he oversaw a wave of uh, new repression from sort of 2011, 2012 onward, including breaking Tibet up into these sort of very tightly monitored subunits. And there really wasn't enough reporting on that at the time because Tibet is so hard to access. You had a wave of self-immolations as protests, which drew a lot of attention, and a severe crackdown, reversal to, if not quite the full... F- the full kind of madness of the Cultural Revolution and an earlier era, at least a, a heavier period of repression
2: than before. So that's what gets you up the ladder in China at this point.
1: Right? At this point, yes, because remember, all of this is taking place against the background of deep, intense ideological paranoia within the Chinese state at the moment. Uh, the the ascent of Xi Jinping has seen a wave of purges within the leadership and a new emphasis upon ideological purity the supremacy of the party and the dangers posed by the outside world. That means that officials um, are really competing to demonstrate loyalty in order to avoid falling themselves. In a way that the the easiest way tends to be repression. We've seen that across the board in China. Like Xinjiang is, Xinjiang is the extreme end of a wave of um, increased political terror and. Crackdown that's been going on for the last few
0: years. I want to come back to the way that the broader world is talking about uh, Xinjiang right now, because when it came to Tibet in the past, there was a big popular movement, the Free Tibet Movement, uh, where you had a lot of celebrities involved, you had major mass cultural attention to this, and as we've been talking about Xinjiang, it, it, the humanitarian evils that are going on there are very difficult to capture, like it's truly awful, and yet hasn't mobilized the same level of public support and outrage as what happened to Tibet in the past.
1: So I would say a, a few things. Firstly, the West has always orientalized Tibet. So there's always been this level of like interest from the late 19th century onwards in Tibet. Tibetan Buddhism was kind of idealized as this sort of uh, mystical religion. In contrast, the, the Uyghur were not known— They've only really existed as a, in the modern sense as a a people for sort of 150 years or so. And, of course, they're Muslim, uh, you know, a group that's been repeatedly demonized uh, in the West. I think we could say this was the case until this year. I do think that this year we've seen, in response to the camps, a really uh, striking uptick in sort of awareness of Xinjiang, awareness of the plight of the Uyghurs become an issue both um, in the US, where we're starting to see people, not only people ask about it, but for instance, there's a bipartisan bill going through the Senate at the moment on the issue. Uh, I, I've got to credit Marco Rubio here for really pushing on this issue in in the Senate. And I think that also in the, in the Muslim world, I've seen the issue being far more discussed in the last six months than it ever was before. And in, in Russia too, there's rather surprisingly, really intense Russian interest in what's happening in Xinjiang.
0: It's difficult to imagine the United States under Donald Trump imposing new sanctions based on human rights violations, but hopefully something can go through Congress and make it through that will make the situation even a little bit better, or at least shed more public light on it. And and there we're going to close. I want to thank James Palmer, an editor at Foreign Policy, who's been our guest this week for coming. His expertise has been invaluable in helping unwrap this. So thanks, James. Thank you. James, is there anything that you've written or that someone else has written that you'd really recommend? Uh,
1: Ryan Thum wrote a really excellent summary of the situation for Foreign Policy. Um, I wrote a piece a few years ago called uh, The Strangers about the about the Uyghur throughout China. Uh, the situation has gotten so much worse since I wrote that article. That in some ways, it seems like a nostalgic period piece.
0: So we'll put the links to those pieces in the show notes. And I want to add one more thank you to our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who always makes the show much better. And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, review to Worldly on whatever your podcast platform is. Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Worldly on the Vox Media Podcast Network. And that's it for this week. Is mind control the tech industry's greatest innovation? That's one of the questions the Financial Times' FT Weekend is currently asking. Each week, FT Weekend brings together an intelligent mix of news, compelling stories, and global lifestyle journalism. To read the article on mind control and a selection of other articles, visit ft.com openminds. You might know Crooked Media from the wildly popular Pod Save America. Well, they have a weekly podcast, Crooked Conversations, which features a rotating crew of your favorite crooked media hosts, contributors, and special guests. It brings PodSave America's no BS conversational style to topics in politics, media, culture, sports, and technology, often tackling subjects that aren't making the headlines but still have a major impact on our world. Crooked Conversations comes out every Wednesday. Subscribe now on
2: Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.